Let us grab our Bibles once again and turn to the last book in God's Word as we come to Revelation chapter 12 this evening. And the students, you might know that we're now beginning the second half of John's Apocalypse. We're going to study, Lord willing, uh, this great chapter over the course of the next three Sunday evenings, beginning this evening with just the first six verses. So let me read that passage for us and pray that God will bless our study, and then we will begin together. So listen now as God speaks to us once again through His perfect Word. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. As for the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Lord, I do ask that you would help us to hear this word by your spirit that we might keep this word and so find its blessing Equip us even this evening for the good fight of faith in which you have enlisted us, to which you have called us in Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It's our somewhat traditional practice in the stone home during the Christmas holidays to give each one of our child, children, a book that we think he or she would like and profit from in the coming year. So just a few months ago, we gave our youngest child, Boston, soon to turn three years old at the time, what is something of a cherished children's book within our family, one that was only published a few years ago, but evidently has become something of a kid's literary sensation in certain ways. It's a book that's titled, Dragons Love Tacos. And if you've ever seen this story, it's a pretty compelling story, and you can see why millions and millions of kids evidently enjoy it. The illustrations are compelling. Uh, The story is quite interesting. Yet every time I tend to read it to the kids, and they go through seasons where we read it quite often, I think something is rather amiss in the whole tale. Because it seems to communicate that dragons are these cute and cuddly creatures, Prickly, yes, maybe just a little, but these lovable little pets that just want a crunch for their lunch, when in reality, what we know from literary history, if you know anything about literary history, is whenever dragons arrive onto the stage of a particular story, we know evil has arrived onto the stage of our particular story, And you might not know that the only time that the word dragon is ever used in the New Testament is in the book of Revelation. It's used 13 times. 
we come to the first occurrence of a dragon in John's apocalypse this evening. And of course, we figure out that this dragon is no cute and cuddly creature. This is not a friend with which we might have a meal. This is the devouring dragon that is the greatest foe that God's people have ever seen and will ever know. So the theme for this simple sermon this evening is the devouring dragon from the first six verses of Revelation at chapter 12. It was years ago that an old preacher by the name of Andrew Gray, he wrote a series of sermons. Well, actually, he preached a series of sermons and collected them into a volume that was titled The Devil Resisted and Put to Flight. It's mostly his sermons on 1 Peter chapter 5, of which we'll mention in a few minutes. And he said that we need this increased awareness, this increased earnestness in striving against Satan because he says, quote, our hearts are all too ready to concur with his temptations. And you might be in here tonight and recognize that tendency in your own heart. The ease with which Satan can snatch your affections, your attention, your adoration. It seems that as you continue to strive against Satan that there isn't a whole lot of striving against Satan going on. It's more succumbing to Satan in his ministry and his strategies against you. So my simple hope this evening and my prayer is that as we study this great scene given to us, as John peers once again into the heavenlies, that you might be encouraged, that you might be equipped, perhaps for the first time in a while, or for, for the first time ever, to fight against Satan, this great foe of God's people. And, and kids, I hope you remember by now, those of you that have been with us for many months, is that Revelation moves on the series of sevens that we've mentioned a number of times. You have the you have the seven letters to the churches at Asia Minor, then you have the seven seals, then we finished last week, the seven trumpets, chapter 15, if you just kind of scan forward in your Bibles, you see seven angels with seven plagues. But between our text in chapter 15, we have a section that we often refer to as the seven signs. And even though you don't have a delineated factor of seven signs in the same obvious way that you do with like the bowls or the trumpets or the seals, it's, I trust, going to be quite obvious in the weeks to come how this section is marking off in a very pivotal way in John's apocalypse these signs that he gets to see and communicate to us, peeling back the curtain once again of the war that exists in the heavenly realm, this war of the ages. And you might have even noticed as I read the text twice, our text is going to use the word sign. So first of all, we're going to see the sign of the woman, verses 1 and 2, and then 3 through 6, the sign of the dragon. So again, sign of the woman, verse 1. Notice what John says, and a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now kids, think of the image. You have a woman her clothing is the glorious rays of the sun. It's as though she stands on the moon and she's got a crown of 12 stars. Who do you think that woman symbolically represents? Well, remember, part of the reason people are confused oftentimes about Revelation is because we don't know our Old Testament terribly well. Whenever you're confused about an image, you always need to ransack the Old Testament. Certainly an image in John's Apocalypse, ransack the Old Testament for its Allusion, perhaps even direct quotation. And this is language that just comes from Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, and this dream that a boy had, Joseph had. You might remember this. He comes to his brothers and says, I had a dream last night, guys. I saw the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing down to me. 
this 12th star, of course, the sun representing his father Jacob, the moon representing his mother Rachel, the 11 stars representing his brothers. And so what you need to understand is that this woman is the covenant community throughout redemptive history. It's God's people, and if we need that simply proved, if you just scan down the end of the chapter to verse 17, uh, what you'll see is that the offspring of this woman are those who keep God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So simple enough. This first sign, the sign of the woman, is the Old Covenant and New Covenant community throughout redemptive history. If that's her identity, notice her agony in verse 2. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. I'm sure many of you mothers can recall that agony of giving birth. Perhaps some of you husbands and fathers can remember her agony in giving birth. It's the picture, the travail of childbirth of this woman. But importantly, this word here for pain, it's often used in the New Testament to communicate seasons of sorrow and torment that God's people endure. Uh, The picture then here is, leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ, which we're soon going to see in this passage, that the church, the community of God's people, was experiencing sorrow, torment, persecution, and pain in the world. As decades passed and centuries go, there is this acute trouble and trial that they continue to endure. And so the text now moves to the second sign and the source, spiritually speaking, of all of that pain and persecution. So we move from the sign of the woman to the remainder of the text and the sign of the dragon. Now, some of you know the name of John Newton, this famous slave trader turned pastor and, and hymn writer. And he was once asked, after God's word, what is the most important book that you have, uh, that you own? And he replied ever so quickly, he said, it's William Gurnall's, The Christian in Complete Armor. Some of you may have heard this book before. It's a brilliant book, but it is a very, very long book. It's essentially Gurnall's exhaustive meditation on Ephesians 6 and the passage about Christ's armor. And my copy of it, because it has a few different editions, my copy of it is this tiny, minuscule text in double column that runs almost a 1,000 pages. And in chapter 4 of that book, he begins to prove from Scripture the great power that Satan has. And the first way he begins to prove that is he says, pay attention to the names God's word gives to God's enemy. And he quickly turns to our text, a title found in verse 3 of Revelation 12. Notice what we're told. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head, heads, seven diadems. My kids... Who do you think this great red dragon is? Again, Revelation helps us out. John does. Just skip down to verse 9. You'll see the great red dragon is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world. So these are two signs. The church and the devil. Now at war against one another. And so he's got this imagery of seven heads, which is communicating his strength, it's communicating his power, his wisdom. Same thing with the ten horns. Horns always were these signs of strength and power. And the diadems on each head, these crowns on each head, speak of his sovereignty and authority. And here's something you need to recognize about Satan that 
chapter 12 is already beginning to show us. It's something that's actually quite key in the book of Revelation. Something we haven't given much comment on, largely because it's going to show up in striking ways in weeks to come, is that Satan loves to deal in counterfeits. Because we've already found out by this point in Revelation that Jesus Christ himself, according to Revelation, is pictured with horns, with crowns, and diadems. And Satan often is this demonic parody of good things. Why even the apostles can speak of him as masquerading as an angel of light. The language here of ten horns seems to come from Daniel's vision of the fourth beast, which speaks about these horns as worldly powers and authorities, uh, seemingly telling us that the ordinary way that Satan loves to bring pain and persecution to God's people is through worldly governments, sinful authorities, demonic rulers. And I'm sure you don't, or you know at least, you don't have to be a novice, or I'm sure you don't have to be an expert in church history to know that Satan ordinarily throughout the centuries, has warred against the church through rulers and authorities. Ten horns of power communicating to us. They're not isolated for just a small amount of time in church history. They're going to be around, it seems, as though until Jesus returns. But Satan's intent is pointed. Look at verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Some people would see this as a reference to Satan's fall from heaven, bringing with him a third of those angels, now demons that serve as his minions and legions. I actually think it's better to, to take that reference in verse 4 to speaking about his war against the church. We know from Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, the book of Genesis with the Abrahamic covenant that God says that Abraham's offspring will be as numerous as the what? Stars in heaven. Daniel chapter 12 verse 3 says, saints our stars. And so it seems to be communicating to us the devil's successful work against part of God's people, not the majority, but certainly a sizable minority of God's people warring against them, striking down a third of them, casting them to the earth with his pain and persecution. But his intent is more pointed. He wants the woman's offspring the child to come. Look at verse 4 as it ends. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. It's a pretty grotesque and gruesome scene if you picture it in your mind's eye. This fiery red dragon waiting for the child to be born that he might consume it. Certainly, this is the worst OBGYN and most sinister midwife a history might have ever known, the serpent named Satan. And the reason we're right to understand this to be a reference to him snatching and devouring none other than Jesus Christ himself is because of what the text goes on to say in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. The kids, that's a direct quote, Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, which is speaking none other, the Bible goes on to tell us, of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, that He is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron, speaking of His sovereignty, His strength, and His authority. So, He has a rod. He has a staff, because He's also not just the king, He's the shepherd king. If you receive this Son of God, Jesus Christ, you'll find His staff guiding you into green pastures and still waters. But the Bible says if you're rejecting this Son of God, you'll find His rod of power uh, breaking out against you 
in judgment as he rules with sovereign authority. And I wonder which stance, receiving or rejecting, applies best to you. Interestingly, you see verse 5 continues, if my count is right, the next 12 words summarize Jesus' entire earthly ministry. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So speaking immediately there of the ascension, the session of Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand. He has returned to glory where he is ruling and reigning with that rod of iron. So Satan was unsuccessful, of course, in devouring the Lord Jesus Christ. He's working through sinful rulers and authorities ordinarily to try to devour God's people. And understand, he did do that, didn't he? At least attempted to do that. But Jesus Christ, when he took King Herod, wielded him, Satan did, as a pawn to what? Try to kill the baby Jesus, saying, we're going to kill every male child in and around Bethlehem that's under the age of two. But he failed at his attempt because God had prepared a place for his son in the same way that God has prepared a place for his people. Look at how the text ends. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Three and a half years. We talked about this with greater length last week, if you were with us. It's a time period that we understand to just be symbolic of the church's experience between the two comings of Jesus Christ. And those two comings being His coming to the throne of heaven in His ascension, and His coming from the throne of heaven in the last judgment. In between the two comings of Jesus Christ then, the church is engaged in the fight of the ages against this demonic devil who wants to devour God's people. But do you see then the protection, safety, and security that belongs to God's people? For again, she has a place prepared by God where she is to be nourished for the entirety of the time until Jesus Christ returns. Satan wars against his church, but the gates of hell will not prevail against it because he will keep her safe in all the troubles and all the trials that come from the devouring dragon. Earlier this week, I stumbled across a book that was called History of Company E, which was the history of this company that fought in World War I. And page one of that book tells the story of one of the company soldiers, this man named Jack, as he returned home after the war, he came across one of his friends who was named George. And Jack and George began to talk, and they began to kind of share the news of what had been going on in their hometown, why Jack was off fighting in the war, and George was at home working and going about his business. And at some point, as Jack's recalling this story in his company's history book, he says, George told me, you know, Jack, It wasn't ever until we read the papers that we actually realized a war was going on. Because, of course, you can remember at that age the slowness of communication. You know, if you didn't pick up a newspaper, lived your ordinary life here stateside, and you could easily forget that a war, a world war, uh, was going on across the Atlantic. And in a similar way, what Satan is out to do is to convince you that there isn't a war going on right now in the spiritual places in the heavenlies, this war of the ages, the battle of the universe. And so what I want you to see as we begin to close is two more things from these two signs in the first six verses of Revelation 20, the first of which is Christians live in a spiritual war. It is that simple. 
Christians live in a spiritual war. It's one of the mega themes of Revelation. It's genuinely the main theme of this text. It'll be the main theme of next week's text. And it'll be the main theme of two weeks' time text. Because we need to recognize that we're engaged in this good fight. The fight of faith as we come to Jesus Christ. We've been enlisted into his army. And recognize, students, that one of Satan's greatest designs and strategies in the world today is to convince you that this war really isn't going on. Just go live your life accordingly. Or, if you do think the war is going on, he's not that deadly. He's not that powerful. He's not that clever in this spiritual war. When in reality, he is the greatest threat that you're ever going to face. This prince of the power of the air. The ruler of the world, as the other texts in the New Testament would say. This great red dragon. So I wonder, what is your stance to this spiritual war? As a one of consistent, vigilant fighting. Or perhaps a better word to describe your stance is not consistency, but complacency. And you're wondering why you succumb so often to Satan's temptations. Christians live, number one, in a spiritual war. Number two, Christians live in a spiritual wilderness. You see that, don't you, in verse 6? The woman, the church, God's people fled into the wilderness. Think of all the times in the Old Testament when God's people lived as a wilderness people. And he miraculously provided for them, preserved them, and protected them in the midst of their sojourning towards the promised land. What Revelation is telling us is that you too are sojourners here on the earth. And kids, you never want to be comfortable in this world. Be content for sure, but don't be comfortable in this world. For this is not your home. You're just heavenly citizens passing through on this pilgrimage, journeying your way toward the celestial city that is above. This is a wilderness life in which you live. I know perhaps some of us leaders and pastors in the church feel often uh, one of the, uh, the hardest work of pastoring and leading is convincing God's people that you do live in a wilderness. That this isn't your home, so live accordingly. Sometimes it's what the rest of verse 6 says is convincing people who are aware that they live in the wilderness, that God has prepared a place for their protection and preservation in the wilderness. Because I'm sure that some of you know acutely that you live in a wilderness time right now. You feel as though you have no home. You feel as though you're surrounded by enemies on every side. You feel as though you're never going to make it to the promised land. But the good news, isn't it, of Jesus Christ is that he has guaranteed your passage, your preservation, your way into the promised land. How? Because he went into the wilderness and fought the war, didn't he? You remember after his baptism, the Spirit leads him where? Into the wilderness, where he might wage war against Satan. And there, with reliance upon his Father's word, smashes Satan's schemes and designs giving quick summons to us and our attention that soon he's going to completely smash Satan's schemes and designs. And he was going to do that by taking all of the wilderness of God's wrath into his soul as he lay there at the cross at Calvary. In your place, in my place, that you might know that he has enlisted you by faith and repentance into his army. And you're fighting, of course, not as one unaware about this war, but one altogether aware 
but fighting with confidence against this devouring dragon because the war has already been won and you get to rejoice in the protection, the preservation, and the provision that belongs to you as you wait for Christ to come again. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would sustain us in the midst of our sojournings here on earth. That we who are your new covenant wilderness people might feast upon the heavenly bread that is given to us in Jesus Christ. That we might abound in his strength as we put on his armor every day. That we may wage our warfare against Satan with steadfastness and with strength. With the Spirit's anointing upon our life as we want to strive against Satan and resist him. For Lord, we do know that you have told us that he prowls around as a devouring lion. Always seeking for someone to destroy. So help us, we pray, to rest upon your protection. And help us to employ your strength as we do resist him and join with you in his final defeat. As you have promised to crush Satan even under our feet. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.